0: The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Well, good morning. Uh, this morning on this topic of Sola Scriptura. Now, I've been going for about six weeks on this topic, and I laid the foundations for... Sola Scriptura or scripture alone in that when scripture speaks, God speaks. And so therefore, when scripture speaks, it has authority over us to tell us what to believe and how to live. And then I started answering the questions of so what? So why is this important? Well, it's important because scripture is sufficient. It contains everything we need for life and godliness. And so the reason why we want to hold to this Bible is it's not a lucky rabbit's foot. It's not something that you rub it on yourself and all of a sudden you get holy. The reason we want to be in this word is not even because of duty, not because we have to or because merely that we're told to. But the reason we want to be in the word is because this is where we see the Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is sufficient for us, for everything in our lives, he is our savior. He is the answer. And so this morning, I want to turn the corner, as it were, go from not just the foundations of Sola Scriptura, not just the so what's, but now how do I actually start applying this? And this morning, we're going to see that all the scriptures point to Jesus. All the scriptures point to Jesus. So you can turn to 2 Corinthians 3.18. We're just going to be mainly in one verse This morning. And I'll read it for you. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus there, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So here Paul is summing up an argument where he compares earlier in the chapter that, you know, we're under a covenant that's not like Moses. Moses had to put a veil on his face so the people wouldn't see the glory that was revealed by Moses when Moses saw the glory of God. So he's talking about, Paul is talking about an incident in, in, in um, the Old Testament where Moses, he gets a glimpse of the glory of God and when he gets that glimpse of the glory of God, his face shines Now his face was shining so brightly that he put a veil over his face so that the people wouldn't see it. And he goes on to say that this is not the kind of covenant we have. We have a new covenant where the veil is taken away, he says in verse 14. It's taken away in Christ. And when we turn to the Lord is when the veil is removed. And so we all with unveiled face Behold, the glory of the Lord were transformed into that same image. Now, now, what I want to get at this morning is that all the scriptures point to Jesus. And the reason they point to him, as we heard in John 5, 39, is these testify of Christ and these are what bring true life. You want to have life and have it abundantly? You want to have life without regret? You want to have life that is glorifying to God? You need to reflect Christ in your life. You need to be like Jesus. Now, Christians commonly think today that the gospel is only for those who have not yet believed it. Believers don't need to hear the message of the gospel anymore. Believers, what they need to hear is the message of discipleship. We need to learn how to live the Christian life and be challenged to go do it. And most Christians have a baseline of performance by which they gauge their acceptance before God. And sometimes that baseline is nothing more than I go to church, at least most of the time, I go regularly, and I avoid major sins. And so I must be doing okay. But that kind of thinking is not thinking that's in line with the Word of God, it's not thinking that's in line with The gospel of Jesus Christ. And it leads to one of two things. And I've mentioned this before. It either leads to a legalism where I just want a new set of laws. Tell me what to do and give me the checklist so I can check it off in the morning. And then I'm done with my Christian life duties and I can go on and do whatever else I need to do. And God will be, God will accept me as long as I check those boxes and do those things. Or it leads to, well, what, the Bible would call antinomianism, which is a Greek word which basically means against the law. Uh, means hedonism, doing what you want. Sin that grace would abound. Well, God's in the forgiving business. He forgives sinners in Christ, and so therefore I can go sin and, and God's going to forgive me for it. I could sin that grace would abound. It doesn't matter what I do because Jesus is just going to accept me. Well, those kind of living... Whether it's legalism or, or antinomianism, whether it's this hedonistic, free grace type idea, it leads to one of two things. It either leads to arrogance, believing you've reached some level of spirituality by which you're acceptable to God. Or if you're more honest, it leads to despair. Because you, would never, you know that you'll never match up to God's righteous standard. And you know if you're honest with yourself that those sins are really offending a holy God and you know that he's not happy with you. This is why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And just as we are justified by faith alone as we've been talking about in these solas we are also sanctified by faith through grace in the spirit working in us in obedience to christ but it's not a legalistic duty that accept that that gives us acceptance to god it's living out of who we already are it's living out of our new identity living out of this new nature that we have because we've been born again. And so what Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians is what some uh, theologians call sanctification, the process of holiness. Being sanctified is something set apart, set apart for a special purpose. You don't know what this is like. It's like the china that you got for your wedding. It's sanctified. It's set apart. In fact, some of it's so sanctified you haven't used it in 20 years. The Bible says... That when we're saved, we're also sanctified. We're set apart to God for a special purpose. And that's the root idea of what it means to be holy. God is the one who's totally set apart from us. He is completely other. He is not like us. He's holy and set apart. And so now, though, because we believed in Christ, we can be holy as he is holy. We can be set apart unto the Lord. And this is what Paul is talking about. We're going to be transformed into this same image. And so sanctification is like eye surgery. It's like eye surgery. It, it fixes our gaze so that we see Jesus and the gospel the way we ought to see it. See, the gospel speaks of the person and work of Christ and all the scriptures point to Jesus. We heard it in John 5. He told the Pharisees who were the experts, they were the Bible teachers and experts of their day. And he tells him, you search the scriptures because you think that in them, you'll find eternal life. He says, let me tell you something. All of those scriptures speak of me. And he goes on to say, you know, Moses, the guy you hold up as the highest who started the Bible in Genesis. He wrote about me. That's what Jesus says. In fact, Jesus goes on to say in John 17, that the only way you're going to be sanctified is in the truth. John seventeen seventeen. he prays to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And this was the plan of God from the beginning. Hebrews 1, 1, God who spoke at various times and in various ways to our fathers through the prophets has in these last days spoken to us in a son. This is why Jesus... You remember after he was resurrected, he gets on... In Luke 24, he gets on the road to Emmaus, and he's talking to two of his disciples, but he doesn't reveal who he is. And he's walking with them, and they they walk these number of miles from one city to another, and he's talking to them, and they're completely discouraged because they had hoped in Christ. They had believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and that he was going to save Israel, but then he'd been crucified and buried. And then he says to them, foolish and slow to believe... Luke 24, verse 25 to 27, all that Scripture speaks of. And then he says, beginning with Moses, he shows in the Scriptures these two disciples everything concerning him. So he starts in Genesis and he goes to Malachi and he shows all of the passages that point to him. We're here. What Paul says is. Listen, this is the reality. If you've believed the gospel and you're a Christian, every Christian has new life. He says, we all, with unveiled face. We all. Who's the we all? It's all of those who are Christians who've been born again, who've believed in Christ, verse 15, where the veil is taken away. Those who have the Spirit, who have the ministry of the Spirit, back in verse 6, Those who are sanctified, those who are set apart, are those who know Jesus. And so he says, We all, every Christian has new life. This is encouraging because all means all. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm tempted to think that other Christians do it a whole lot better than me. They've got this thing figured out. But here the scripture, Paul says, Every Christian, we all with unveiled face, are being transformed. Every Christian, whether weak or strong, will be sanctified. God is going to do it. <clears throat> the spirit filled life, it's not the special deluxe edition of Christianity. The spirit filled life is what it means to be a Christian, it's part of the plan of God for His people. And so, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit of God. You've been born again, you've been made new. He's going to go on to say that you're a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. This is good news. So we all, every Christian has life. And our life flows from the gospel. He says, we all with unveiled face. What does he mean there? I I, I mentioned it just a minute ago in passing. A veil is a covering. It obstructs your vision. If you have a, a veil on, you can't see as well. And in verse 14, he says, But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. This veil in verse 14 is unbelief. And in verse 14, the veil is taken away in Jesus, in Christ, in Christ alone. This is what John means in John 1 when he says, We beheld his glory. Glory is from the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, I saw his glory when I walked with him. The word that was in the beginning with God and was God that made all things, that sustains all things. He tabernacled among us. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, I saw his glory. He's full of grace and truth. And those are two glorious words, two aspects of his glory that are revealed. Grace, unmerited favor, God giving you what you don't deserve in Christ and truth God telling you how things really are. And grace and truth are revealed in Christ. And when we put saving faith in Jesus, we see his grace and we see his truth. And a person who grows in the knowledge of the gospel is going to grow in holiness and sanctification and becoming like Jesus. And when a person grows in the knowledge and grace of God through the forgiveness of sins, he's going to become like Jesus. This is why Spurgeon said, when you have a great need of Christ, you have a great Christ for your need. So we have life in the gospel, and it flows from the gospel, and the first thing we see is it's a revealed knowledge of Christ. He says it's with an unveiled face. It's been revealed to you. It's been revealed in Christ in verse 14. And so this gospel that we've been talking about tied to this word of God, this is what reveals the son of God. It reveals his person and it reveals his work. That's why it's called the gospel good news, because the truth about Jesus is he came to be a servant of all and die for our sins, to take the place for our sins so that we could be forgiven And not only that, he came to bring us new life and to pour out the Spirit so that we would be born again and be regenerated so that we'd actually be able to follow after Christ. That we would have life in us and so now the life we live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. Dear Christian, this should be the cry of your heart every day. When you face trials, when you face fears, when you face your own sin, and you're trying to battle it, and you're trying to get rid of it, and it doesn't seem to go away, this ought to be your hope is that you know who Christ is. You know what he did. He died for you. He bled for you. He paid the price for your sins. He's poured out his spirit upon you so that you don't have to be the same. You're going to be transformed. And that means I'm no longer what I was. I may not be yet what I want to be, but I'm no longer what I was. I'm changing and I'm growing and I'm learning and I'm becoming like Jesus. That's hope. That'll get you up in the morning when the darkness doesn't lift. That'll give you purpose in your job that seems like a drudge and endless and weary That'll give you hope in relationships that are broken that seem dead. Christ is able to raise the dead. This is what we have as we have a revealed knowledge of Christ. He goes on to say, we don't it's not only revealed, it's intimate. We behold this we with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. And that word behold in the Greek is a really rare word. It's actually uh, the NIV translated beholding as in a mirror. So it it takes that one word and it gives a whole phrase beholding as in a mirror. And that's kind of helpful. Although we lose the illustration a little bit because our modern day mirrors show us things too perfectly, don't they? It's like the hair growing off my ears that seems to be massively multiplying. In Paul's time, mirrors were not perfect like we have them. What they were was polished metal. The reflection was not perfect. And so the idea here is not a perfect knowledge of Christ, but rather what they would do is bring the polished metal up as close as they could to get the reflection. It's kind of like when you see mirrors at schools the kids have spray painted on and they've taken the steel wool and rubbed out the spray paint so many times that the mirror doesn't really reflect anymore unless you get real close the idea here is intimacy they would bring the mirror up close to the face and isn't that true we don't have a perfect knowledge of jesus but but we will one day We'll know him even as we're fully known, but it doesn't lessen the fact that we can have an intimate knowledge of Jesus and as we know him and have relationship with him and commune with him, we're going to grow to be like him. We behold him as in a mirror and he's approachable. That's the other thing it means. Please get this idea out of your head that Jesus, that God the Father and the Son are not approachable. That somehow you got to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus. That is a lie from the devil. He is approachable. He says, come to me. All you who are, la- who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, he says. He says in the Gospels, in Matthew, in me you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He says, if you're a smoldering wick, if you're like that candle that's about to gutter out and it's just at its end, he's not the type of person that would snuff you out. A bruised reed he won't break. If you're like a reed out here in the delta that's been bent over by the wind and about to, to just break off, he doesn't decide to finish the job. He's not that kind of savior. He's approachable. Spurgeon says this, the approachableness of Christ is seen in the fact of his receiving the poor offerings of his people. The holiest deeds which you and I can do, he says, for Christ are poor and faulty at best. He goes on to say, As I sat studying at my table last night, there was before me a little withered flower, a sprig of a wallflower which had been lying for some weeks on my table. And it comes from a very, very poor child of God many miles away who gets a blessing from reading my sermons. And she has nothing in the world besides to give me, but she sends me this flower. And I value it because it's a token of Christian affection and gratitude. So it is with our master. The very best sermons we preach, the largest contributions we give to his treasury are only just like that poor little withered wallflower. But the master puts our service in his bosom and keeps it there and thinks much of it because he loves us. Doesn't that not prove how generous, how condescending, how tender he must be? Believe him to be so. Fearful souls come to him. Direct sight of the glory of God the Father is not for this world. Direct sight of the glory of Christ and knowing him perfectly is not for this world. But it doesn't mean we can't have intimate knowledge of God the Father and God the Son. You see, Christ is the image of God, Colossians 1. He reveals the Father, John 14. And look at one chapter over, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. God, the Father, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This means that as we gaze upon the glory of Christ in the Word of God, when we see Christ in the Word, we actually see the glory of the Father. And we can actually know them and have relationship with them and commune with them and have fellowship with them. This is why Christ came. And this is why it is, third, a glorious knowledge. He says back in uh, 3.18, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. What we're beholding when we see Christ is his glory. And I know I've said this before, but what does it mean for something to have glory? It means splendor. It means beauty. It means wonder. It means magnificence. It means the, 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 the fame and the reputation of the accomplishments. Well, God created the heavens and the earth. He made us. In his image, how much glory does he have? He's perfect and holy and righteous and good and loving. He has ultimate glory. And see, that's why to us who are Christians, the cross is beautiful. The cross is glorious. It's why we sing about the glory of the cross. How could it be that a mangled body on a bloody cross 2,000 years ago could be beautiful? Because that mangled body on a bloody cross was there for me and my sin. And he was my Savior. I'll never tire about hearing about the cross. You could preach a million sermons on the cross, and I would love to sit through every one. Why? Because there I see my Savior in his glory. And when I see my Savior in his glory, I see my Father in heaven in his glory. And the Spirit's ministry is to glorify the Son, and in doing so, glorify the Father. And so, all of the Trinity is at work when the cross is preached. The cross is glorious, and it's magnificent, and it's wonderful, and you should love the cross. Fall more and more in love with the cross. And I'm convinced that this is the key to growth in the Christian life. You want to be like Jesus? Love the cross, love what it means, love what it accomplished. I don't mean wear one around your neck. You could do that if you want. But it's not a rabbit's foot. It's not a lucky charm. There, the plan and purpose of God the Father was accomplished on our behalf so that we could draw near to Him and have relationship with Him and be with Him forever and be adopted into His family and call Him Father to restore everything that was lost in the fall so that everything will be made new in Christ. This is why you should love the cross. C.S. Lewis, he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. You know what he means by that? We know the sun is risen, not only because we see that the sun is risen, but because by the sun we see everything else in our life. The sun shines and gives light. He says that's true about Christianity as well. Not only have we seen it in the lives of our friends, but when we're Christians, through Christianity, through Christ and the cross, we see everything else. So he goes on to say that this transformation means we're being renewed into image bearers of Jesus, image bearers of Christ. He says back in verse 18, we're beholding the glory of the Lord and we are being transformed. It's a continual transformation. We are being transformed. It's an increasing transformation. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And it's ever revealing because it goes from glory to glory. And I'll explain that. Paul says, present tense, we are being transformed. Not we were transformed, not we will be transformed. But right now, today we are being transformed. This is the precious teaching of the doctrine of regeneration, the new birth. When Jesus speaks to Nicodemus and he says, you must be born again or you can't even see the kingdom of God. And in Christ, because the Spirit's been poured out, we've been born again. And this phrase, our being, means it's continually happening. Think about the implications of this. Every minute of every day, we as Christians, we are being transformed. As you sit here and listen to the word being preached, you go away from here and you're more like Jesus. As you read your word, you're more like Jesus. This means if you look at yourself over time and you cannot see the transformation, you have to ask yourself, Am I a Christian? The word transformed here, it's where we get our word metamorphosis. It's like from a caterpillar to a butterfly. This is transformation. Our kids love it when that happens in class and they bring in caterpillars and they have, it goes into the different stages and I don't remember all the stages, but I know they go into the cocoon. I didn't get a PhD in caterpillars. And then after a while, that cocoon hatches and the butterfly comes out. Or a moth if you got the wrong thing. That seems to happen at Yosemite. (laughs) But this transformation is obvious, isn't it? It was a caterpillar which crawled on the ground and um, doesn't fly. And it changes into a butterfly which flies and is beautiful. And we hope it doesn't crawl on the ground because that means it's in its death rows or something. So we won't think about that. It is a transformation that is obvious. And when we become Christians, we're transformed. There should be a B.C. and an A.D. in our lives. When we put faith in Christ, we were changed. We were transformed. In fact, Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, same word, by the renewing of your minds. We renew our minds by gazing on the Lord Jesus Christ, learning about his grace and his truth, and we see it in the word of God. All of the scriptures point to Christ. And so we're transformed from sinner to saint. And praise God, we don't go back. We still sin, don't we? But it's not what defines us anymore. It's not where we find our identity in our sin anymore. Now our identity is in Jesus Christ. Our identity is in him. And so Paul says in Romans 7, it's like a a corpse. It's like a dead body that we're dragging around that's still attached to us. And it's sort of infecting us from time to time. But he says, who's going to rescue me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That dead body we're dragging around, as it were, it it doesn't define us anymore. There's no condemnation and there's coming a day when it's going to be removed from us. And he goes on to say, it's an always increasing transformation. We're being transformed into the same image. The same image is what? The same image is Jesus as Christ, as the Lord. What an amazing thought that one day we'll be like Jesus. It's the reason God saved us, Romans 8, 29. Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. That is a powerful verse. Those the Father set his affection upon in eternity past, those he called to himself, he planned out the steps that they would take in their life so that they would be like Jesus. That means our trials. That means our sufferings. That means our circumstances. That means things like this fire or that horrible shooting in Las Vegas or the disasters and the hurricanes on the East Coast. All of it comes through the sovereign hand of God so that it would conform His children into the image of Christ. God is on His throne. Don't be deceived. He's on His throne. No one knocked Him off, no one's taken the reins, as it were and is steering the ship. So that means we need to have faith that God knows what he's doing. Now, when we're conformed into the image of his son, it doesn't mean we're going to become gods. We're going to become like his son in holiness and being set apart in righteousness. We're going to take on those attributes of God that we love so dearly, his righteousness and his holiness and his love and his mercy. We're not going to take the attributes that belong to him alone, like his omniscience and his omnipotence Him being all powerful and all knowing and being everywhere at once and all wise. But this is an increasing transformation. This means That we can live life without regret. Wouldn't that be wonderful? To not have to rehearse in our minds the sinful mistakes we've made. To not have to try to drown it out with the things of this world like drink and drugs and entertainment and whatever it is. In Christ, we can be transformed so that we could live life without regret. We'll have less and less regret. Jesus, when, he, when, when they tried to trap him and they said, you know, they tried to ask him about taxes and his tax policy. And they said, what should we do with this coin? And he said, whose image is on it? And they said, well, Caesar's. And he said, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. And what was he getting at? You've been stamped with the image of God. You're created in the image of God. And so give those coins to Caesar, but give yourself and your life to God. You bear his image. And that's what happens in Christ by the power of the Spirit. As we are being transformed, we offer our bodies a living sacrifice to Him to be used by Him. And that's why it is not only increasing, it's also ever-revealing. What do I mean by that? He says here, from glory to glory, from one degree of glory to another, literally, it's this idea of not only do we grow into the image of Christ, but we reveal to others the image of Christ people will see more and more of Jesus in us the more we behold the light of Jesus the more we reflect his rays that goes back to our purpose and our life here on mission that as we're being transformed our sanctification is not only about us It's about being salt and light in this fallen world and telling the gospel and preaching the gospel and people seeing the hope we have, seeing the life of Christ in us, seeing that we have the same trials, the same problems, the same fears, the same hopes, the same discouragements, and yet in the midst of it all, we're not falling apart because Christ is sufficient and he's interceding for us and the Spirit of God is holding us up And so it's a revealing transformation, revealing to others that this gospel is true. In fact, isn't this what Jesus said? They'll know you're Christians by the love you have for one another. So as we display the character of Christ in our lives and love one another, we actually demonstrate the gospel that it's true. Well, the Holy Spirit is the one changing us. At the end of the verse... We're being transformed from one degree of glory to another, and this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And the reason he has to say Lord who is the Spirit is because he had just talked about the Lord who is Jesus in the same verse. So he says, We behold the Lord Jesus Christ in the mirror of the Word. We're transformed into His image, but the one who's doing it is ultimately not us. It is the Spirit of God who is also the Lord. He is also God. In other words... Are being transformed from glory to glory is from the Spirit of God who is the Lord. He's the one working to change us. How is he doing it? Through the Word of God. He does it through the Word. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of our minds. As Ephesians 5 says, by the washing of the water of the word as jesus said in john 17 to sanctify him in the truth your word is truth all of the scriptures point to jesus and this is what he was getting at when he's talking to them he said you think you have life you want to have real life you need to understand the word of god points to me When he's walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he says, you're slow to believe everything the prophet said. And beginning with Moses, he said, this is why I had to suffer and die and be buried, so I could rise again and conquer sin and death in the grave and bring life. Everything the Spirit does points to the Lord Jesus. And so the Spirit, if we want to have the Spirit fill us, we need to be filling our minds with the person and work of Christ out of the word. And this is what the Spirit aims to do. This is why in Ephesians we're to keep in step with the Spirit. We're to walk in the Spirit. And if we do that, actually what happens is we crowd out sin. We, we, we crowd it out and starve it out so that it is no longer beautiful to us. It no longer is what wakes us up in the morning and gets us going. Instead, the glory and the beauty and the majesty of Christ is. And so this is very practical. This will kill sin in your life, and this will cause you to be more like Jesus. This is why we want to be in the Word, because in the Word we find Jesus. All the scriptures point to Him. And He's the one that we're being conformed into. He's the one we're being transformed into his image. And what we need more than anything is to behold his glory. The glory of God in the face of Christ. And where we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ is in the word of God. Father, thank you for this time this morning and this message, how practical it is. I know this is the hope of my brothers and sisters. It's my hope. I want to be like Jesus. I don't want to be like I have been in the past. So, Father, would you do a work in us? Would you bring revival? By that I mean, would you bring a work of the Spirit of God in our lives so that we see the sufficiency of Christ and we become like him? And would you do it to all of us? Would you transform all of us and make it so apparent and so obvious that it impacts our community, our family and friends and our loved ones and our neighbors and even our enemies? Father, do this, I pray. It's the prayer, the cry of my heart, Father, is that you would use us in this community to display the glory of Jesus Christ, that he's the one who's full of grace and truth. Do this, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen